We're going to go ahead and get started with the program. As Jim said, I'm Talmadge Boston, and we're going to have a, an interview today. And Michael, I want to start, say welcome to Dallas, and the big shorts off to a great start. You're number one on Amazon, and Moneyball's about to start filming with uh, Brad Pitt in the lead in June, and The Blind Side is America's favorite movie, just got released on DVD, and these days, you're on TV more than Bill O'Reilly, and we got a sold-out <laughs> ballroom. So, first of all, congratulations on your success. Oh, well, thank you. <clears throat> thank you. And we're here today, of course, to talk about your new book. And in your 60 Minutes interview, you described it as the story of when capitalism was almost destroyed by capitalists. So since the big short inside the doomsday machine only came out a couple of weeks ago and not everybody's had a chance to read it yet, give us your best definition of what exactly is the doomsday machine that prompted the big short. Um, <clears throat> that's a hard question. <laughs> you know, it, it's, uh, the, the, um, the, the simple answer is a subprime mortgage lending machine. Uh, the, 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 the entire financial system organized itself over a period of several years around this one bet. Uh, and the, the, uh, the bet was, on one side of the bet were the people who were betting on the subprime mortgage market and the very der various derivatives that were uh, derived from it. And on the other side of the bet were a very small handful of people who were betting against it. Uh, and what, what pulled me into this story in the first place uh, was, I mean, it really was Liar's Poker. It was my first book. And it was it, it, in the sense that um, I, had a, I, I had a sense that an awful lot of what had led to this disaster had its seeds in things I described in Liar's Poker. So there was a kind of sequel to be written. But it was an astonishment that these big Wall Street firms, uh, which when I left Wall Street, were the smart money on Wall Street, that, that you, you uh, you did not want to be on the other side of a zero-sum bet from Solomon Brothers or Goldman Sachs. You knew you were going to lose. Uh, you you wanted to think twice before you were their customer, uh, and and it was uh, it, and they were uh, they knew what they were doing with money, uh, and the American investment banker was uh, around the world. Whatever people thought of the United States, no one ever thought Americans didn't know what they were doing with money. I mean, they've emulated this. They, they, every, every, every advanced developed society has versions of the American investment banker. Mm -hmm. So somehow, these people, since I left Wall Street, had become the dumb money at the poker table. That they had, that the big firms had all got themselves on the wrong side of this big bet. And um, that, that made me wonder. It just made me wonder just kind of how it had happened and why it had happened. Because this crisis we've gone through, I mean, it's a very strange event. It's, it's different from many other financial crises. Uh, you know, in, in um, I don't know, in, when World War I broke out, the British Stock Exchange shut down for six weeks, and there was panic in the markets. But World War I had broken out. They, you know, something had happened. This, was out of a, this came out of a clear blue sky, auto-generated by financial people. Uh, so so uh, that, that led me into it in the first place, and then, I didn't know what I was going to write. I never know I'm going to write a book. I mean, I went in just kind of thinking I might do a little magazine piece. Uh, but the, the discovery that there were a very small handful of unusual characters who, were, who had become the smart money at the table, who were on the other side of Goldman Sachs' bets or, uh, that, that, had done, that had won, 
that amazed me. And those people, this book is a story of those people. It's a, it is a way of trying to explain to someone maybe who doesn't know anything about Wall Street what happened over the last few years through the eyes of people who figured it out. Yeah. Well, let's begin at the beginning. And, and since it was the subprime home loans that backed the subprime mortgage bonds, which in turn backed the uh, collateral debt obligations, the CDOs, we never would have had a subprime mortgage market collapse without the plethora of subprime mortgages. And in your book, you talk about New York nannies and Las Vegas strippers and migrants. There's a lot about Las Vegas strippers. Yeah. For, those of you that, and, uh, for, for those of you who haven't bought the book, it's yeah. mainly about Las Vegas strippers. And, uh, and uh, yeah. migrant farm workers and all these people who are qualifying for million dollar loans. And so, do you believe that Barney Frank and Christopher Dodd deserve some of the blame for the economic collapse since they're the ones who successfully pressured Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to expand the subprime mortgage market during the Clinton administration? I think it is a red herring to try to pin this whole thing on Washington. I think that there were mis obviously huge mistakes made in Washington. The, the sins of omission are greater than the sins of commission. Fannie Mae, the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mae, I mean, this country has had a policy going dating back to the 30s, to the Depression, of subsidizing home ownership. And Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were tools for doing it. Uh, the, their uh, brief was expanded, bad, disastrously, into subsidizing mortgages that should never have been made, extended in the first place. But there are a lot of telling numbers that, that, that suggest that that, that you know, that's not the explanation for the crisis. Their share of the subprime mortgage market declined rather dramatically. Their percent, the percentage of the market they 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 uh, they owned uh, declined during the boom. Declined during the period from 03, 04, 05, 06. The private market, the private capital markets, were so hungry for this raw material for the machines that they actually synthesized, they couldn't find enough people to lend money to, that they actually replicated synthetically the loans, the worst of the loans, so that they could create more bonds and more CDOs. Uh, so, it, and these so these loans weren't being made because some political person was saying you have to make these loans. That there was a demand pull and what created the, the, the there were several important kind of breakdowns in the machinery that enabled the machine to, to do its damage. But um, if you're going to throw a finger at Washington for having done something really awful, it was, not, it was, it was not, having, not having done things. It was not having um, looked very closely at credit default swaps before they decided not to treat them as insurance or not, and, and, and let them just proliferate without any kind of regulation. It was not, it was allowing the ratings agencies to be paid by the people who created the bonds they were rating and not, and, and, and with essentially no oversight. So it was, I think it's, it's, it's um, look, there's nothing that happens in the world uh, happens without Washington being somehow to blame, right? I mean, it, 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 it just, it's just the way that, but I think it's a mistake to think if you, if, the, if Barney Frank, had never existed, that this would never have happened. Um, the, the, the machine had a life of its own apart from the political process. 
Well, let's go into this uh, ratings agency situation because you talk about it a lot in the book and how the huge Wall Street firms were paying big money to the ratings agencies in order to get the coveted AAA rating. And uh, that uh, uh, strikes me as, as rather troublesome that uh, investment decisions are being made on the basis of AAA uh, when, when the ratings agencies, uh, you could argue, were bribed uh, by the Wall Street firms to come up with these top ratings that, that the bonds clearly didn't deserve. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah. Uh, no, I, I absolutely. <laughs> and, and by the way, we can talk about Sandra Bullock and Brad Pitt, too. We don't have to talk about <laughs> we, we don't have to spend all of our time talking about Moody's and Standard & Poor. There are a lot. Uh, in some ways, they're a lot less interesting. But the, 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 um, this, if you had to, one of the flaws in the, in the, in the global capital markets has been uh, that, well, historically, a AAA rating meant something. It, it, you know, the, this, the rating that is bestowed on the debt of the U.S. Treasury meant something. And the, the, the yield on in any bond that has got a AAA rating is, is so low the returns are so low investing in them that there's a universe of investors to whom it really doesn't pay them to, to do serious credit analysis of anything rated. They're, they're, if, they're, if they're investing in AAA rated stuff, they're not thinking what's underneath this. They're just taking it on faith when Moody's and Standard & Poor has evaluated it that it's AAA. And so the, the, um, once uh, you could take a pile of subprime mortgages and pronounce 85% of them AAA, and then take a pile of the worst parts of the subprime mortgages and repile them up and uh, the, the parts that aren't rated AAA and pile them into another pile and, and call 80% of that AAA, uh, then you had a problem because, the, because then you had, you know, uh, German, German lands banks uh, funding the U.S. subprime market simply because they wanted to invest in AAA rated securities. And so the question was, how did the ratings agencies commit this folly? Uh, and the answer is, I mean, I think it's the answer of an awful lot of this crisis, is that they were incentivized not to see a lot of obvious things. I mean, if you back away from this event, um, what you see is that, um, that, that there, were, there was a lot of money to be made in the short term by, by lending money to people who should not have been lent the money. Um, the, when you do that, you of course create financial risk, the risk they're not gonna repay the loans. So the financial system, with the help of the ratings agencies, with the help of complexity, essentially disguised the risk. And the, but the punchline to it all is that it ended up disguising the risk from itself, that, that Morgan Stanley uh, helps teach Moody's and Standard and & Poor, literally, the people from Morgan Stanley go over and teach Moody's and Standard & Poor's how to rate subprime mortgage bonds and then three years later, the head subprime mortgage bond trader at, uh, at Morgan Stanley, um, in a matter of a few months, buys $15 billion of AAA-rated mortgage-backed securities that go to zero in a matter of nine months because he believes the ratings. And so, it, it's, it, it, and so it, it, the, the stories are, the stories actually, this, this whole book was amazing to me how many stories that there were out there in this mess that were wonderful human dramas that had not been told, and that you had a man, a, a single guy in Morgan Stanley, widely regarded as the smart trader in the firm, who was A, given the authority to buy $15 billion of, of anything, 
and, and uh, that he bought $15 billion of something that was going to be worth zero, thus incurring the largest single loss in the history of Wall Street trading by a single Wall Street trader. Uh, it makes you wonder what, what the dumb ones were doing. If he's the, <laughs> you know, if, 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 he, if he's the smart one. Um, yeah, his name is uh, Howie Hubler. Howie Hubler. Hubler, and his picture was on 60 Minutes. Have you heard from him since the book came out? <laughs> um, 60 Minutes came through my house uh, about a month ago and spent three days. The third day, my wife was asking him when they were going to leave. That we just, the question was, they, but they, they, and they, we did hours and hours and hours of tape, and they cut it down to whatever they cut it down to. It was long, 30 minutes. And I didn't know what, we didn't know what they were going to use. And when I saw that they'd, that they'd used Howie Hubler, and apparently had called him to see if he went on cam wanted to come on camera to explain how he had lost. He, had, he actually ended up losing about $10 billion, but nevertheless. Um, uh, I was sure he was going to jump off a bridge. I mean, because these, this is the, another amazing feature of this crisis. Howie Hubler uh, uh, manages to lose $10 billion for Morgan Stanley like that, and he's allowed to retire with his, all of his uh, unvested stock, tens of millions of dollars, uh, and nobody says anything about it. it. He signs an agreement saying he won't talk to the press. Uh, Morgan Stanley goes mum because nobody, everybody's embarrassed, all the people who were supposed to be supervising and they don't want the story told. And you have this incredible event and nobody hears about it. Uh, and I th so I think he was shocked. I think he actually thought that he could lose $10 billion and no one would ever know his name. And, uh, and so, so um, I, I haven't heard from him. Um, uh, I, I uh, think he's moving to a foreign country yeah, after yeah, seeing yeah, his yes. picture on 60 Minutes. Yeah. Uh, you, you've said in your television interviews that, that Goldman basically refused to talk to you and, and Deutsche Bank refused to. Was this the feedback you got from the Wall Street firms as you're trying to understand their side of, of the big short? There were two, uh, there were two responses I got. Um, the official response from all the firms was, um, we can't talk about this. Uh, that, and I got no joy when I called up the public relations department. If I called the individuals, and I mean every individual, they all said, I'm not allowed to talk to you, but when can we talk? And, um, <laughs> and to the point where, you know, I, I, I had trouble writing my book because my phone was ringing off the hook because these people all wanted to talk. And they wanted to talk for various reasons. They all, they've all, either the, the ones who are there obviously compromised because they are still in the firms. Everyone who's left has signed this piece of paper saying that the firm can take back the money that they pay them if they talk to the press. So a lot of them can't be seen talking. But the, 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 funny, the funny sort of um, subtext to this whole enterprise of me digging back into the story and trying to find out what happened was I found over and over um, people who had helped to create this crisis had come to work on Wall Street because they'd read Liar's Poker. And, and so, so, and I can't tell you how many, and, and I really did come to the conclusion after a while that if only I'd stayed on Wall Street, this was the catastrophe I would have created. <laughs> uh, that, that these, these were my, this were, these were my horrible spawn. They were, they, 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 the, uh, the, um, uh, you know, the, I've said this before, but I'll say it again, that I wrote the, the Liar's Poker, and I really did think, if anything, that a young person reading it who had some interest in doing something else would read it and say, well, now I know what that's all about. I'm going to go do something else. Uh, instead, the effect was to cause all kinds of, the, the takeaway seems to have been um, 
look, this guy who says he knows nothing at all, and apparently does know nothing at all, was able to make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year knowing nothing working on Wall Street. I know nothing. I'm going to go make lots of money working on Wall Street. And, and so I attracted into the industry all the people who created this crisis. And they all felt a kind of personal attachment. They, 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 and so they wanted to talk to me. And everybody, everybody. And the few who hadn't read it had seen The Blind Side, you know, and or, or knew and, and, they, and they thought, well, it's going to be a movie. I've got to be, in, you know, I got to be part of that. So I had absolutely no problem at all with access. I found out everything I wanted to find out. And, and, um, and if it had been, you know, this is something I kind of wonder as our society grapples with what happened and how to reform the financial system. Um, the natural instinct of the political leadership is to haul down in front of Congress the people who run the big firms. What I quickly found out is what I, you would have suspected from what happened anyway is that the people who ran the big firms didn't have any idea what was going on. They weren't the people you wanted to talk to. So those sort of ceremonial interactions you might have with the CEO of Goldman Sachs were going to be next to useless. The really interesting things were to talk to Howie Hubler, to talk to the people at Goldman Sachs who did the trades with AIG that, that sunk AIG. And all those people uh, were very happy to talk. Well, talking about that Goldman and, and, and the AIG, uh, the Secretary of the Treasury, Paulson, of course, was the former CEO of Goldman. Yeah. And, and do you believe that he didn't have a, a conflict of interest <laughs> in, in making the decision to, to bail out AIG so that they could repay Goldman to keep Goldman from failing? I admire the objectivity of your questions. <laughs> you, um, you don't have a view on this by any chance. <laughs> so, What's your view? So, <laughs> so uh, it is an incredible thing that, all right, so the market, or the financial markets organize themselves around this bet. Um, Goldman Sachs in March, from March of 2005 to June, July of 2005, managed to persuade AIG to sell them $20 billion of insurance on essentially the first lost pieces of, more, of, of subprime mortgage bonds. And no one to this day knows what the conversation was between the Goldman Sachs guy and the AIG guy, whether Goldman kind of fooled them into, into insuring this stuff or whether AIG was just a, was willfully uh, negligent. And um, in any case, Goldman gets, so there's this essentially thing of it as a bet, a $20 billion bet on whether these bonds are gonna go bad. And, um, and everybody else on Wall Street sees that AI, Goldman's done this deal with AIG. For, for, on those $20 billion of bets, Goldman's traders were able to book instantly $4 billion in profits, which then they got paid for at the end of the year. Um, so uh, everybody else on Wall Street sees them doing this, and they pile on. So another $40 billion of bets gets made with this unit a at AIG. So when AIG goes down, it's the $60 billion hole that's uh, the, the big problem. And the question is, well, the bet's been made. AIG owes Goldman Sachs and everybody else $60 billion. Uh, who's going to pay off the bet? And uh, Goldman, um, the, the end result, of course, is that the Fed and the Treasury get together, and the Fed decides to assume AIG's gambling debts and to pay off all the Wall Street firms and that's not the, the most shocking thing. In a way, the most shocking thing was to pay them all off 100, 100 cents on the dollar. That you would have thought that someone would have said, 
all right, Goldman, you've got, they owe you what is now 13 billion because they've taken some collateral. AIG owes you 13 billion, you're not gonna see a penny of it unless we intercede. We will intercede, but you're gonna take uh, 50 cents on the dollar, 60 cents on the dollar. Apparently no one even broached the subject. They just, they gave them 100 cents on the dollar. And, um, and the problem, of course, as we all know, is that virtually everyone in the conversation that led to that decision either had worked for Goldman Sachs or wanted to work for Goldman Sachs. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> in some cases maybe didn't realize he wanted to work for Goldman Sachs, but it's in the air he breathes. And, uh, and you, you can't help but wonder if there isn't, you know, how public policy can be run on, su on such footing. It is, even if in some sense, it they, even if they were operating in the best of possible spirits, the, the, the appearance of corruption is so horrible that it might as well be corrupt. Yeah. They, they should never have allowed that the, the conversation to be structured that way. So, so Paulson, the, the former CEO of Goldman, allows AIG to be bailed out so he can take care of his former company, Goldman, and he allows his competitor, Lehman Brothers, to sink. Yeah, well he does, the, the, the sequence of events is first he lets Lehman Brothers sink, and then they jump in, then they panic when they see the consequences of Lehman Brothers sinking, uh, and they, they bail out AIG. What they did not appreciate was the size of the exposures the firms had to one another, because this market of side bets on subprime mortgage bonds, among other things, had risen up, and the side bets were all bilateral agreements between the firms. So, you know, you know, they were they were firms that were very exposed to Lehman Brothers. And when Lehman Brothers went down, as you all know, it looked like basically every big Wall Street firm was going to follow, uh, because no one knew. It wasn't so much that there might have been that the actual losses were understood, that losses in the system, is that the uncertainty. No one knew how big the losses were. So, so yes, he lets, he lets his competitor go down, and it, one wonders how history might have been different if the first firm to go down would have been Goldman Sachs, whether they would have let Goldman go down. Who knows? You, it's not an answerable question. But we shouldn't even have, be having this conversation. It, it, it shouldn't, that should never have been, he should have recused himself, you know, that they just shouldn't have been at the table. Do you acknowledge that had there not been a bailout, there would have been a Great Depression? You know, I don't know. I, you know, I don't, they don't know. Uh, I assume so, because all these smart people tell me it's so. Uh, but um, uh, it, it's, uh, um, what would have been the alternative? I mean, I'm thinking about, there, you see, there are different ways to do a bailout. What they did was they socialized the losses but let the gains remain privatized. So the upside's still at the Wall Street firms for the large, you know, you, st you still, now the bets are being made not with shareholder money but with taxpayer money, in effect. Um, so what if they had done what the British did, which was, a, which was a more aggressive nationalization? They just taken, they just wiped out, so they nationalized the firms and, and uh, fired the executives running the firms and wiped out the shareholders and, and caused the creditors to take, to take real hits. Um, but then, at some level, backstopped it with the full faith and credit of the United States. I, I, they, the, the Wall Street would be being run out of the U.S. Treasury now, which would drive you crazy, I'm, I assume. Uh, but, 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 uh, Particularly but, if Paulson's running. Yes, yeah, but, but, it, but it would have been, I don't know if that necessarily leads to a Great Depression. It depends on how they did it. Um, the, the thing to realize that is, it is so incredible in retrospect, given that this was supposed to be sort of the a bastion of free market thinking, uh, that, that, the, that the response to failure on Wall Street 
of the Wall Street firms was so, the, the, both the, the Bush administration and the Obama administration backed themselves into a corner by deciding that um, the, the, the firms can't be nationalized and the creditors can't be forced to take hits. Uh, and once they did that, they have no other solution but to gift money to these firms until they're back on their feet. And that's what's been going on for the last 18 months. That, that their subsidies in various forms, many of them not fully understood by people generally, have enabled the firms to be enormously profitable. Uh, and, uh, but it's a gift. And the, to me, the really shocking thing is that the people on the receiving end of the gift quickly interpreted it as, as, a, as a, not a gift, but just their just ret returns, that, and that they began to pay themselves all over again. I can't, that's just breathtaking. Mm -hmm. But in the long run, maybe not such a bad thing because it's so enraged the entire population that we may get serious reform. Mm -hmm. Now you end the big short describing your lunch meeting in 2009 with John Goodfriend, who had been the head of Salomon Brothers and really kind of one of the villains in, in Liar's Poker. And he looked you in the eye at that lunch and he said, your book ruined my career and made yours. You've edited that line. Oh, there were some things. Help me out. There were some words in there you can't repeat. Oh, it's a uh, nice audience. Yeah. It's a nice audience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yes. And uh, so, so what? Went, I mean, when you made the decision, I, I want to invite John Goodfriend to lunch. Tell us what Here's was what going thinking, through your mind. Well, this was the very beginning of the process. I realized that there were some things that had happened under my nose um, at Solomon Brothers that were this, it was the beginning of screwing up the incentives on Wall Street that led to this debacle. It just took a long time to play out. And um, one of them was John Goodfriend's decision to turn the Wall Street partnership into a public corporation. And he did it, and it was a violation of a promise that he had made to the Solomon family when they had made him the CEO. And he was never to sell the firm. And it was about the first thing he did was sell the firm and cash out, make a bunch of money for himself. And he had an argument for why this had to be, why, why it was an advantage to be a public corporation. Um, and, of course, what that did was it changed the nature of the calculation going on inside of the heads of the, the risk takers in the firm. Before, when it was a private partnership, uh, the people, the partners were liable for, if the firm went down, they were personally exposed. And the kind of risk they took, they, were, they watched themselves very closely and watched their traders very closely. It is highly unlikely that a private partnership would have bought $15 billion of subprime-backed bonds to, as, a, as a bet, um, or let Howard Hewlett do whatever he wanted to do without asking too many questions. Uh, so the, the minute it became shareholder money, it, bec it became looser. Um, the risk-taking became more uh, detached from scrutiny. And, and so I thought, I wanted to just go back and ask him, you know, it was one of the original sins of Wall Street, how he felt about it now. And I'll also actually let him know, because Liar's Poker caused so much trouble in his life, that I was a little sorry for that. <laughs> you know, that I was just writing, you know, he, was, he had the misfortune of hiring me. And, uh, and I, I, I was aware that that had been, a, uh, you know, it had been a distraction for him for a little while, and I wanted to let him know that, you know, as, as much of a mistake as I thought some of the things he did was, you know, I didn't, I didn't harbor a lot, a lot of personal ill will or anything like that. Uh, and, he, and I also gave him a chance, because he's a very old guy now, to shout at me if he wanted to shout at me. And he didn't actually want to shout at me. He was, it was, a, in some ways, a very uh, poignant kind of encounter. Um, and he did say, 
in retrospect, that was, it was a, it, it changed things. And it was maybe a mistake. He said it was a mistake, but, and everybody said it was a mistake, but then all the other guys on Wall Street did the same thing because they saw how rich you could get if we didn't. And, but he, but in, in, he did agree that in retrospect, that was sort of the beginning of this period. So he did acknowledge it. He did. And so he hands you and offers you a oh. deviled egg, well, which that's is the, the end great of metaphor. Yes, the end of the, um, he, um, after he says, he, after he tells me that I've ruined his life, he lifts up his plate. He's got a plate of very elaborate, it's a fancy, his favorite fancy French res restaurant in, in New York, and he's got a plate of very complicated looking deviled eggs. And he picks up the plate of de deviled eggs and he reaches across and he says, would you like a deviled egg? And uh, in the book ends, you know, some, I took one, something for nothing, it never loses its charm. But it, that, it, that his that temptation was always at the heart of this story. So, so a deviled egg is to a raw egg as a synthetic subprime AAA rated mortgage bond back <laughs> CDO was to a home mortgage. Is that, is that the metaphor there? Not uh, mine, but. But it works? You Does it work? Give it a whirl. <laughs> they seem to like it. Uh, in, uh, in Liar's Poker, you talk about how people would sit around and play the game of what if. You know, what if there's an earthquake in Tokyo? H how does that impact the market? Did they stop playing the game, what if? Because nobody was asking what that's if. That's a really, that's a great question. It's a funny way to put it. No, but it's a funny way to put it because one of the, you know, the characters in this book are, they're three main characters and they're, char they're people who, um, who, saw, who saw this crisis building and, and were very vocal about it while it was happening and were diagnosing exactly what was happening in the financial system and nobody was listening to them. And the question that, that recurred to me and that enlivens the story is what is it about these people that allow them to see the world differently than everybody else is seeing the world? And one of the characters, in effect, is just this. It's enga is engaged in an extended game of what if. It's, um, it's three young men who start a hedge fund with $100,000 in a Schwab account. And they're operating at first out of a garage and they they, they're th they have a, but they have an argument about the financial system, about financial markets. They think that the financial markets don't ask what if. That they, in, in particular, that they don't, um, that they severely uh, uh, misjudge the likelihood of, of extremely unlikely events. So miracles and catastrophes. And so they set about with their $100,000 systematically looking for long shot bets what if sort of bets uh, in everything, in commodities and currencies and foreign stocks. And they're looking just for, they're look, they're gonna, they know they're gonna lose most of the time, but they're looking, if, they pays, if the long shot returns often enough, uh, they'll win in the long run. And God knows whether they were lucky or smart. The track record is only six years or seven years now. But they, they turned 100 grand into 12 million in a matter of a couple of years and then they then they stumble upon this bet that's available to make in the subprime mortgage market, and they ask, what if? And as they dig into it, they realize, you know, the market is not only not asking what if, they sort of, the market's just assuming basically real estate prices are gonna go up forever. And that, that this is certainly not a, uh, it's not a it's not, it's, that's not a, a bet that people should be offering you with 50, 50 to one odds. Mm -hmm. And they put it all on that, and they turn 12 million into 120 million kind of thing. Uh, but they, but it is, that, that, uh, that mental uh, habit of, of uh, sort of taking, taking seriously uh, remote possibilities um,
clearly was not sufficiently present in the financial system. I mean, it, it led them to misprice, I mean, way out of the money, long-dated options. Mm -hmm. You've talked about really the four main characters, Michael Burry, Eisman, Lippmann, and the Cornwall Garage Band group, and how each of them you describe as quixotic and, and isolated and, and antisocial, such that when they yelled fire in a crowded theater, nobody left and every, everybody burned up. So as you're getting into these characters, when did you make the decision, this is more than a Vanity Fair magazine article, Th this is a book? What was that aha moment for you? It was, thi it was this. It was, um, it was realizing I'd only met one of these characters when I wrote a little piece in Portfolio magazine uh, 18 months ago about the crisis, and it was Steve Eisman. But it was realizing that um, that article, which was 8,000 words, was only scratching the surface of something really interesting, and it was that, that investment decisions, the decisions that Eisman made to be, to, that he made that were so at odds with the entire financial system were the result, it wasn't purely an intellectual thing. It was a result of deep character. It was his personality, the experiences he, he, he'd had in life. And something prepared him imaginatively to see that the world could dramatically change. And so there was a, the character, all of a sudden the character was important. And I couldn't draw the character in a magazine piece. You need much more space to let character breathe. And then I thought, I wonder if this is true of these other guys. I mean, I knew there were kind of a dozen people who, uh, a couple of them here in Dallas, who had made this bet. And so I wandered around and met them all and started, got, get, got to know them. And it became quite clear that, that, that you know, if you want to have variant views, it helps to be variant. That it helps to be a little different if you're going to see the world a little differently. And, but they were all different, they were, they were all different in different ways. Uh, so it was awareness that it was, this was a narrative, that it came out, it, it, that it rose out of human beings' characters that told me that it had to be longer. That it, that it had and I also had the sense going into it that all of these people, oddly, uh, almost all of these people, um, who were in the pool of a dozen or so investors, but all of the three of my, my three main characters, were outsiders to this event. None of them were like subprime mortgage bond people. None of them knew what a credit default swap was or a collateralized debt ob obligation. They knew nothing about the ratings agencies. So they had themselves to learn. And I realized that they, they'd had this adventure. Uh, for the, each of them, it was the story of their lives. Uh, and in learning, I could teach the, in their learning, through their learning, I could teach the reader. So I saw there was just a big narrative opportunity. Well, the one that stood out the most for me, Michael Burry, the, the guy with the, with the bad eye, who found out he had Asperger's. I mean, this, I mean, this is a, not a wonderful character. Here's this guy who, is, who thinks that, he, when you, the first thing he says when, when I meet him is, I have no friends. Who has no friends? <laughs> I mean, and, and then he says, then he corrects himself, I have two friends, and he gives me their email addresses, and they both say, we've never met him. <laughs> uh, you, know, you know, basically, they say, they say, you know, we've met him casually a couple times. The entire relationship is by email. And, uh, and, and, he, and, he, and who, who, when he gets into, he's a neurologist at the Stanford Hospital, who is in, in the late 1990s, before there is such a thing as a blog, creates an effect, a blog, where, at, where in his spare time, he writes about value investing. And he writes so persuasively that before long he's being read all over Wall Street. 
And when he announces on his blog that he doesn't really want to be a doctor because he actually doesn't care about people very much, uh, uh, and he's going to go become a professional investor, money, big money, finds him to, to stake him to a hedge fund. Never would have happened in an, in an era when it would have required some personal interaction between him and the people who were backing him. The internet makes him possible because he is so socially awkward and un uncomfortable with people. And he thinks the reason is he's the way he is, is he has a glass eye. That he has, uh, he lost an eye to cancer when he was a baby. And he has a glass eye and it causes him all kinds of trouble. It's, you know, it, you, never, you never get a sense he's looking you in the eye. He's sure that everything in life came from this glass eye. Uh, and in the middle of this uh, trade, after he gets into the subprime mortgage bet, when he is not only alienated everybody, alienated from everybody, but he's now alienated his employees and investors because they think he's crazy to be doing what he's doing. Uh, he discovers his son has Asperger's syndrome. And he starts reading about Asperger's syndrome and he realizes as he's reading these books, it's not his son he's reading about, it's him. He has Asperger's syndrome. He's a medical doctor who has diagnosed exactly accurately everything that's going on in the financial system and totally misdiagnosed himself. You can't make that up. I mean, it, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's just wonderful material. And, uh, and even better, because one of the problems with the, you know, just generally with these sort of stories is selective memory, that it's so hard to get the truth about what happened even yesterday, much less three years ago, when people's reputations are at stake. Even better, he's like pathologically honest. He, he, would, sit, he would say, he'd sit here and he'd say, the, you know, that suit would be nicer if your tie wasn't so ugly. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, 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 no, no, no I, didn't, I didn't mean that. <laughs> but, but he's just tactless. Uh, and, um, but he's really ruthlessly honest. And he lives his life by email. And he just hands over to me five years of email archives. So I can read his every, as he lived, he's lived his life through it. Everything that happens between him and Goldman Sachs, him and Deutsche Bank, it's all there. So it's an accurate record of th this, uh, this event we've just lived through. Uh, I mean, it's just amazing material. And he is, you know, you ask, you know, you ask, how, why did he come to it? Why did he see the world differently? And well, it's maybe not that, maybe it is obvious, but he's, the, he, he had an incredible ability. The, the, the flip side of his disinterest in social interaction, which was a huge benefit because he didn't hear the propaganda. He wasn't persuaded by people he wanted to be persuaded by. The flip side of that was the way he made decisions was sitting in a room by himself reading prospectuses. And as he says to me at one point, he says, only someone with Asperger's syndrome would read a subprime mortgage bond prospectus. <laughs> and he was, he, he was pretty sure he was the only one, aside from the lawyers who drafted the things, who, re who, read, who was examining the contents of these bonds. And, um, and he develops a very strong argument for why you should be betting against these. And he's absolutely right, and the world hates him for it. Well, at the end of your write-up on Michael Burry, after he's made all the money for himself and his investors, and then they've been so critical of him when they're waiting to come back, he, he says, I don't want to do this anymore, and he goes out and buys a guitar. Yes, this, and he knows this is the end. He says the thing about Asperger's is that people with Asperger's have these obsessive interests, and they, and they fixate on, on things, but and they do that because it's a safe place to go. It's sort of like a place to escape from the world. And his safe place had always been investments, had always been the financial markets. It's he escaped, you know, that's what he was really interested in when he was going through medical school. And 
he is so assaulted by his, his uh, contrary views. He's so, uh, he's so um, um, uh, in so much conflict with people who he thought were his friends, or were not his friends, because he didn't have any of those, right? But if friends, people, his backers, his employees, that it ceases to be a safe place. And in the middle, uh, just as he's, as he's about to reap the rewards of his bet, just as he's about to turn you know, his 400 or $500 million fund into a billion and a half dollar fund, um, he, uh, he finds himself starting to obsess about guitars. And he doesn't want to play guitars. He doesn't even like listening to music. He just wants to acquire and learn how to build and collect guitars. And, um, and before he knows, he's got 40 or 50 of the things around his office, and he knows this is the end. I'm no longer interested. He says, you can't control, the thing about Asperger's is you can't control what you're interested in. He once said to me is, if, I, if you could just make everybody who had Asperger's be interested in the financial markets, they'd all be rich in big successes. But you can't control, he couldn't really control what he was interested in. So he just, it was like a switch. He ceased to be interested in the financial markets. And, he sh and after he has his big success, he shuts down his fund. So he gives people their money back, says, I don't ever want to do this again. In your book, when you said he turned a guitar, I thought, well, did he turn into Eric Clapton? Uh, but you said, no, no he became no, a guitar collector. Okay. Well, he says it's awkward because, parent, like he said, several parents of his, uh, of his children's friends play in bands and things, and they'll come over to collect their kid on a play date and see the guitars and want him to play. And he says, I don't play. And they don't understand it. It's like a house full of guitars. <laughs> and, he and he doesn't play. Okay, well, we're going to now open the program up to questions, and as is our tradition here at the World Affairs Council, our first question comes from a student, uh, Caroline Kreider from the Hockaday School. Michael wants to know, as more monetary transactions are done virtually, what impact does that have on how much money is in circulation and how consumers will spend it? There is a student that is under the illusion I actually know something. <laughs> <laughs> You know, authors don't know anything. We know what's in our books, and then uh, outside uh -huh. of it, I, I, I don't actually know the answer to that question. It's a, it's a, it's a brain teaser, though. Okay. Uh, uh, it, I, I think, in theory, not necessarily anything. It wouldn't change that the money supply just is, is still. Well, a, a related question is just the subject of securitization. I mean, obviously, uh, it didn't do good things in the subprime mortgage, but is your book an indictment of just securitization across the board, or, or is it just tied to this specific uh, situation? No, I think it's an indictment. It's an indictment of a specific kind of securitization. It's the securitization that went on as it went on in the subprime mortgage market, where the, the person who is origin making the loans, the institution that's it's originating the loans, doesn't keep any skin in the game. That securitization is used to put such distance between the ultimate lender and the ultimate borrower that there's a, a, effectively that, that, um, that relationship that's so critical in monitoring the, the uh, supply of credit uh, breaks down. That, the, that the, the originator has no, doesn't care one way or the other whether the person they're lending the money to is going to pay it back. And all the little things you learn from actually being face to face with a person when you lend them money, all that information gets lost because the, the loan is just going to be packaged into securities and passed on to someone else who will suffer the losses. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? We have microphones. Yes, Jenny. Tell us about Sandra Bullock. Yes. <laughs> there you go. Sandra Bullock. Don't touch on her marriage. <clears throat> I'd be the only one who has it <laughs> if I don't touch on her marriage. I mean, my God, it's all like you walk through the airport. I didn't mean it that way. Uh, but but it, it's um, uh, she was 
an absolute delight. I got to know her a bit. I went to the set. The first you need to know is that the author is the least relevant part of any Hollywood movie. <laughs> that the ideal Hollywood author is the one who sells his book and then goes get hit by a bus and is dead. <laughs> They'd rather you dead because you have nothing to add. They've got the material. And, but the director became a pal of mine. And he was really insistent I come to the set. They filmed it in Atlanta. And uh, so I came for a day and a half, brought my seven-year-old. She babysat the seven-year-old while I was taken around. Uh, and she was just, she was bright, she was funny, completely natural, no, without artifice, scared to death of the part. She really thought she was screwing it up. She, she was um, uncomfortable for a while, and which, you know, it's a tribute to the importance of doing things that make you uncomfortable, that, that she did that role. Um, she, uh, uh, she handled herself under enormous pressure with total grace, and then she has this horrible thing happen. And it, you know, just, there was an interesting piece in the New York Times, it was either today or yesterday, D David Brooks wrote uh, an op-ed called the, the Sandra Bullock Trade. He said, would you take that trade? You ha in, a, in a matter of days, you, 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 um, you have the greatest triumph of your professional career and your marriage collapses. Uh, and he goes on to talk about it, the sources of happiness and how actually all happiness research suggests that you would no, in no way take that trade. That the amount of happiness she gets from the Oscar is gonna be greatly overshadowed by the amount of unhappiness in, this falling, in the falling apart of her marriage. But she, um, uh, she's everything she seems to be. Uh, I mean, she's just very good news. And uh, the amazing thing is a Hollywood story. The amazing thing is that the, the company that first bought the blind side was Fox, 20th Century Fox. Do they still call it 20th Century Fox? I don't know about that. But, but anyway, Fox buys it. And they say they're just in love with this story. They want to make it no matter what. And then they say, actually, after they own it, they say, we're only making it if Julia Roberts will play the part. And we waited for almost two years for Julia Roberts to go dis make a decision. And she decided not to do it. And then they decided that no one else could do it. And even though Sandra Bullock was available, they had no interest. And it took, to get that movie made, the only reason it got made was that the founder of FedEx, Fred Smith, lives in Memphis, down the street from the Tui family, the family that adopted Michael Orr. And his son dates their daughter. And he knew the story. He'd watched it like I watched it. And he said, I'll pay for it. And he has a movie company out in a little tiny called Alcon. And Alcon made it. And they spent $29 million to make the movie. And they're going to gross $400 million. And, and no one else in Hollywood would make it. Is that not? Is that? Uh, the, the studios are so embarrassed right now. <laughs> Any other questions? There's one back there. John Paulson. Yes. yes, John Paulson is the one, the single biggest uh, uh, winner in the in the uh, in the bet that I described. He himself made what 3.8 billion dollars for himself in 2007. And when I started, his name was obviously the most prominent in the group of people who had made these the successful bet. And I went and spent quite a bit of time with him. Uh, and in some ways, he was not that interesting a character. Uh, I liked him, but he was clearly a pure economic animal, much more pure an economic animal than in my other characters. That all these characters have lots of interesting other motives. Uh, but um, he had, uh, 
you know, one of the things that makes a great character is having a lot at stake. And he had been very clever in the way he'd gone about making his bet. He had gone out to investors and said, I don't, I don't necessarily believe the subprime mortgage market's going to collapse, but they're pricing this insurance so cheaply, much more cheaply than they should, and it's a hedge against everything else you do. Give me some money, uh, and we'll put it into essentially this insurance fund. And if it doesn't work out, if you lose your money, well, the rest of your portfolio is going to be fine, so it's no big deal. And it, if the worst happens, you know, this will be, a, this, this will be a, a kind of insurance policy for you. So if, it hadn't, if he'd been wrong, it wouldn't have mattered very much to him. It was, uh, he had less, in that way, less on the line. It, it, all these other characters had their careers at stake. You know, they were all in. Um, and then finally, uh, he, uh, he was a bit more, I mean, he was still very much an outsider. He, you know, Goldman's, I have a friend who Paulson approached with this proposition in uh, 2004 or 2005, late 2005. And the friend called around Wall Street to say, who is this guy, John Paulson? And it sounds, what he's saying about the subprime mortgage market sounds like it makes a lot of, a lot of sense. And Goldman Sachs told him he's a fourth-rate hedge fund manager who nobody thinks much of. And now he owns Goldman Sachs. Uh, you know, it's a funny thing. But I just, you know, you just, you know it, there are lots of things I needed for, a lot of ingredients in a character who was going to really make this swing on the page for a reader. And he didn't really have them all. But he was very open with me, and he would have been very happy to be one. Uh, it just, I just couldn't make him work. We have time for one more question. Yes, sir. Most of us in the room have taken uh, high school economics, the American capitalistic system, free enterprise, Adam Smith's invisible hand, and so forth, that if you make a series of wise decisions, you prosper. If you make a series of unwise decisions, you go down. Is that system now obsolete? No, it's, it's a great system. Uh, the problem is that when the rules in the financial system get so perverted that if you make unwise decisions, you still prosper. I mean, that's the, the, the strange thing about this story in this period in finance, and everyone in this book, the people on the wrong side of the bet and the right side of the bet, get rich. I, and how does that happen? You know, th there's nobody, Howie Hubler gets rich. Uh, and so I think what's happened is that one of the things I've come to appreciate in telling this story is that um, the markets need rules to function properly. They need, the, they need the right rules. And then a lot of the wrong rules are in place. And the rules need to be changed. And this is going to be, for Wall Street, a dramatic and unpleasant experience. And so it's going to be hard to impose these rules on Wall Street, the new rules. But with the wrong rules, the free market, the market can do some bad things. And it had the wrong rules. Jim Falk, you want to close us? Thank you very much, gentlemen. My pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, let's give another hand of applause for Talmadge Boston, Michael Lewis. Congratulations. I want to thank our sponsors as well, Winstead, PC, Mutual of Omaha Bank, Accenture, and of course, AT&T. Remember now to turn on your phone 